Hey, Merry Christmas again. Hey, do me a favor real quick. As you're being seated, why don't you go ahead and high-five your neighbor and say Merry Christmas. Can you do that real quick? Yes. Merry Christmas Eve. You're right. Thank you for that. Was that you, Sophia? Thank you. Uh, Hey, we've actually been in this message series over the last few weeks. We've been talking about this word Advent, and Advent comes from this Latin word in Christian tradition. Advent is this Latin word that talks about waiting or arrival. It's this anticipation that somehow, I mean, this is the mind-blowing truth. And again, if you're not a Christian here, welcome. Like, this is the mind-blowing truth that Christians believe, that God, the same God who created the universe, who is not bound by time and space, but somehow this God entered into the world and was contained in flesh and blood and walked among us. I know that sounds utterly crazy and uh, astounding. And yet this is what Christians believe about Jesus. We call this the incarnation. Let me hear you say incarnation. That's right, taking on flesh. Now, here's the thing. Now, some people think that, oh, Christians believe in these myths or these kind of endless kind of fables. And yet, here's the thing. Um, The gospel accounts, which are the historical accounts of Jesus, are actually historical records. And that's why we have names in them and times and under the reign of Caesar Augustus and when Quirinius was governor. All of these clues are given. These are receipts that are given so that people who would read these, even years, thousands of years later, would be able to look back and trace back and say, did this really happen in human history? Now, here's the thing. Here's what Christians believe, that Jesus actually did enter the world in human history. We've been exploring, in fact, four different um, characters that actually um, would sing these songs in response to the person of Jesus. And uh, today, we looked at a song sung by a guy named Simeon. Now, Simeon, he actually um, comes to us, and when he meets Jesus, somehow, God reveals to Simeon how special Jesus is, and Simeon is prompted to sing a song. Now, check out the description that was read for us earlier by Alex. Look, this is what it says. It says, now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. This language of the consolation of Israel. The people of Israel were constantly a people that were oppressed, marginalized, in exile. And the same is true even during this time that this is written. Uh, the people of Israel had been under Roman occupation. And notice what, ha- what it says. It says, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we believe, is God, the Spirit. Holy being other spirit, being like breath or wind. So like Holy Spirit that he would not die, in other words, Simeon would not die, before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, or the anointed one. The Messiah was someone that, in Jewish history, they believed that there would be someone to deliver the people of Israel, that would free them from captivity and oppression. Again, I told you, their whole history was was, um, complete with with being oppressed and marginalized. And so they were longing for a Messiah to come. Simeon somehow gets this revelation that he will see the Messiah Before he dies, moved by the spirit, he went into the temple's courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. In other words, he believes that God is fulfilling a promise that God has made. You may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, he's like, I'm ready to die now. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. 
Now, he sings this song somehow under supernatural revelation. Now, I mentioned, Simeon is just one of many that actually sing these songs. Look at this list. As we've been exploring week after week, we talked about Mary, the Virgin Mary, when she sings a song. Uh, or Zachariah's song, who's actually Mary's uncle, who in his old age, he and Elizabeth were able to give birth to John the Baptist, who was a precursor or a forerunner to Jesus. The angel song, when uh, basically the, the angels were... Uh, um, sung a song to the shepherds, and the shepherds were revealed that somehow that Jesus the Messiah was going to come. And then we have Simeon's song. Now, here's the thing. All of these fanciful kind of songs, angelic hosts, Mary who sings the Magnificat, and Zechariah whose lips are shut, but then he begins to sing. In all of these songs, many of us, we probably think, oh, yeah, this Jesus birth thing, this was such a big deal back in those days. And the reality is it wasn't a big deal at all. In fact, no one basically knew who this Jesus person was aside from these tales of songs that were given. Uh, and again, more than being tales, they were written as a historical account. In fact, these songs are actually outliers. They're not what everyone commonly thought. So here's what's crazy. The Jewish people, here's what they believed. Again, they've been longing for deliverance. They're people who are oppressed. For 400 years, they call this the intertestamental period. Uh, try saying that five times straight. No, no. Uh, but the intertestamental period is this period in which after the prophet Malachi, for 400 years, there's just this silence, this waiting. Now, think about how long 400 years is. When you think about the continental United States and the history of the continental United States, like, just think about that history. And now, just think about 400 years, people have been waiting and longing. There's been this period of silence where people are like, God, when are you going to show up? Simeon somehow gets this revelation that he's going to see the Messiah. Now, here's what's crazy. You know, the baby comes in, and somehow the Spirit reveals to him that this Jesus is the one that's going to deliver the people of, of Israel, right? So Simeon bursts out in this song, and there's these accounts of these four different songs that somehow are revealed that this Jesus person is so special. But here's what happens after these songs. There's like 30 years of Jesus' life, and it's mostly kind of ho-hum. There's nothing special that's, very, that's written a lot about Jesus' childhood or his teenage years or even him as an infant, in fact, Simeon, who sings this song, could you imagine? Simeon's like, this baby will bring the deliverance of Israel. Praise this magnificent prayer. You know, and then I could imagine the baby just looking up at him and being like, ba-ba, or something. I don't know. Uh, in fact, I wanted to uh, invite, actually, Jonathan, can you come on up here with Josh? We were having coffee earlier this week, and I was wrestling with this sermon, and there's a, a young family here, Jonathan and Sarah, along with Ezra and Naomi and Joshua. And so, guys, give it up for this family here, everyone. John, I, you know, Josh, how are you, buddy? Good to see you. Jonathan, can you tell us a little about uh, your family? Just give us a rundown of their ages and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, so we've got three. Uh, Ezra is eight. Naomi is five. And then Josh actually turned two at the retreat. At the retreat. Happy birthday, Josh. That's amazing. What are some, and this is Josh. I mean, we were having coffee earlier. And uh, Joshua, it was so cool hanging out with you, buddy. And John, could you just tell us, what are some milestones that have happened in Joshua's life recently? Um, 
so one big thing is that he just moved out of a crib and into a toddler bed. Um, so that's kind of a big deal for us. <laughs> um, he also started stringing together uh, words into sort of sentences, I think. Um, so that's kind of a big deal too. So he can uh, convey more complete thoughts and hopefully get us to understand more what he's doing and was saying. Um, what else? He started eating spicy food. Oh. That's a thing. He had, he had his first kimchi and uh, he was all right with it. So we're pretty happy about that. Yeah. Amazing. Joshua, did you want to add anything? <laughs> no, don't trust me quite yet. But that's awesome, John. John, thank you so much for just this example. And Joshua, thank you. Happy birthday, buddy. Thank you, Wang family, for just being in this illustration today. So can we give it up for these guys, everyone? You know, you know, they're a lovely family. And as I was just thinking, you know, for anyone who's had children before, you know those early days when you just have an infant and those long long days. It feels like one day is like 30 years. Any new parents know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, I've once heard that for, for parents, um, the days are long, but the years are fast. Isn't that true? The days are long, though, especially in these early days. And could you imagine Jesus, like Simeon is giving, pontificating, and singing this song with falutant praise about this this one who's going to deliver Israel. And this infant is just staring back at Simeon. And then could you imagine Mary going home with baby Jesus? And, and then, you know, baby Jesus is a little bit tired and needs to take his nap. And somehow Joseph and Mary are trying to figure out what to do. And then can you imagine Jesus becoming two years old, just starting to string together sentences and being contained in human flesh? Maybe starting to to roam around and do things. And as I was thinking about Joshua, and I was thinking, wow, like sometimes it can feel like this, this stage, especially for young parents, where oh, this takes, it's taking forever. This is such a long period. And yet somehow, like, it, it's not like when Jesus was running around when he's two years old, all these people are like, hey, there's the Messiah. That's the one who's gonna live and die and resurrect from the, the earth. No. In fact, there's this time when Jesus is basically walking and living amongst us. This is what we believe about God taking on flesh, as it talks about in Philippians chapter 2. It's like this hidden, invisible work that's happening in Jesus' life. Simon, we don't even know how old he is. We don't even know if he's actually alive when Jesus dies and resurrects from the grave. He probably certainly isn't alive when the church is born and Pentecost falls and uh, this movement would begin to spread so that today we're talking about this Jesus person. Simeon probably didn't even live to see this promise fulfilled. And yet somehow Simeon's able to sing with great faith that God, you're the one that does the impossible. And you, you can now let me die because I know that you are a God who fulfills your promise. You see, here's the thing about these songs, and here's what happens in the Christmas season. It is so easy to get distracted by all sorts of things, gifts and trees and Fifth Avenue and traffic in the city and tourists, lots of tourists in the city. It's so easy to get distracted and yet miss kind of the hidden, invisible ways that God is working that might seem so ordinary yet so imperceptible to many of us that God is actually working in hidden, 
and invisible ways. He works through the rearing of a child that would grow, that looks so unfancy and normal, and yet this is how and when God works. We see these songs and we're like, oh my goodness, these songs, everyone must have recognized that Jesus was special. The truth is, no. Hardly anyone recognized how special Jesus was. And yet the reality is God works in these hidden, invisible ways. And the question for me and for you is, like, are we able to recognize the hiddenness, the invisibility of the ways that God works? Maybe God is working in your life and in my life right now, but we just can't see it because we don't have eyes to see the way that God wants us to. The reason why Simeon, Mary, Zechariah, and the angels are here is because somehow they're able to see with the lens of what God is doing that is far more true and real than others around them. You know, the past few weeks, I've been quoting Richard Rohr where he says, some people see things as they are. In other words, we see things through my own myopic lens, through my own experiences, through my own filter, and as a result, through my own anxieties, through my own fears, through my own kind of woundedness, and as a result, the way I see things, the way I react to the world around me, it's often through my own self. However, what maturity looks like is when we're able to start seeing things as they truly are. That God somehow in the mystery of his ways, that God is God, I am not, that God somehow is weaving together a will and a way in his goodness and in his providence, doing something so imperceptible. Because why? Because God often works in hidden and invisible ways. You know, what's interesting is uh, I had this very harsh relationship with my father growing up. I was born uh, one of uh, four boys and uh, all of us had very harsh relationships with my dad. Um, over the years, though, I've had through tons of therapy and my own journey of my own healing journey and starting to understand him and his life. And as I was looking back around, and God has done so much to heal my relationship with my father. And I look back at some of the things that I was so angry at him about. When I was in college, we ended up going to Korea. And I didn't make many trips to Korea, but this was where my parents were born. I had been born in the States. But one of the first few times when I went back when I was in college, I remember all my friends um, in, in university, like they were all going uh, while, while they were in college to Korea, and they were basically going to party. And I was like, man, I, this is why I want to go to Korea as well. I can't wait to go party in college in Korea. So I went there. Well, actually, let's, not, let's be honest. I actually wasn't a partier. I was a studier. Sorry. Um, <laughs> however, however, I thought I was cool enough to just do anything different than what my dad wanted me to do when I was in college. And so my father, though, he insisted. He's like, no, no, no I've, got, I've got something set up for you guys, for my, my twin brother and I. I've got something set up for you guys that you guys are going to do while you're in college. And I was like, okay, what is that? So he ends up setting us up to start working at a gas station in Korea. And uh, when we found out we're working at a gas we're like, really, this was the part-time job you were telling us about? The lucrative thing we were going to, I was so frustrated and angry. I was like, oh my goodness, dad, I can't believe you did this. Of all the things I could be doing in my summer, it's to be working at a gas station in Korea. And he's like, this way you'll finally learn Korean, you know. <laughs> and so I was like, oh. Now, here's what's crazy is like looking back at that moment, like I was so angry. And this is just like what dad is like. My dad just wants, he's out to get me, wants to make my life miserable. And yeah, what's interesting is like now looking back at my life, I can't wait to send my kids to Korea to work. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> looking back at my life, 
like, I, I realized, like, I'm so grateful for that experience that was so unique that taught me about hard work and, like, being able to connect cross-culturally, learning and fumbling through a language. Um, I got to do it with my brother as well. And that was one of the most memorable summers of my life. But it took me years to just start to reframe the way that I saw things. Because, again, before, the way that I saw things, it was only through my own lens and hurt and pain and anger and anguish. And now looking back, though, taking a step back, I'm like, wow, my dad had the foresight to actually introduce me to an experience that I didn't have before when I was in college or that I wouldn't have had. It's interesting how that happens, huh? Some people see things as they are. Some people, though, can see things as they truly are. And somehow there's this in-tuneness that Simeon has. There's this in-tuneness that Zechariah has, that Mary has, that the angels have, that they're so in tune with the living God that they can see that when life seems to be falling apart around them, God is actually doing something mysterious and powerful and hidden, but God is still at work. What is it for you today? Maybe your job is going a little haywire and you're starting to feel really anxious about it. Maybe you're single and you've been waiting to meet somebody and you're just, you're feeling like, God, I don't know what you're doing. You have no idea what you're doing, God. Maybe there's a situation at work, and it's just, it's so imperceptible what God might be doing, and yet, God, what if we really believe that God is actually able to do things in your life? He's doing something, and if only we can tap into this kind of the supernatural connection to be able to hear from God, to say, God, what truly are you doing? You see, this requires something called faith. This is what Christians believe, that we are people of faith. Look at what it says in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what, about what we do not see. That we are a people then who start to walk with faith, believing and trusting that even in moments that feel so downtrodden, like there's no hope in the world, somehow that we're able to see with eyes of faith, to trust and have confidence in what God has promised. This is what it means to be a faithful person. See, but it's not only about faith, like this intangible kind of belief system that we have in this God. It's about being able to act on your faith, isn't it? Especially in those imperceptible waiting moments when Simeon's just waiting. Okay, I prayed, God, you revealed this is the Messiah. Can you imagine just waiting around? Saying, Jesus, when are you going to do some miracles, you know? Like, Jesus, when are you going to really overthrow Rome? You know, Jesus is just learning to string together some sentences. <laughs> Could you imagine? Simeon just waiting for this. Now, it takes faith to be able to trust in the fact that God is working in invisible, hidden ways. But you see, the challenge of faith is actually acting on your faith. There's a lesson right now that for our kids, we're trying to teach our kids regularly. This is one of the lessons that we're trying to teach them. See, what it means to have faith and what it means to actually walk in faith is to do the right thing even when it's hard. To do the right thing even when it's hard. Uh, the reason why we're trying to teach our kids this is because oftentimes we succumb to peer pressure, 
to social media, to what other people want for our lives. But what does it mean for us to do the right thing? If we could go to the next slides. Oh, yep, there it is. Yep, do the right thing even when it's hard. To trust that in difficult moments, I can still make the right choices. See, that's when your faith is really tested. Because here's what happens to me. When I get anxious or afraid, or when I feel like God's not doing his job right because I'm single, ready to meet someone, and I just, right, when I start, then what ends up happening, I start taking things into my own hands. And I start living out of what I want more than kind of living in tune to what God is doing in his hidden, mysterious ways. When something is happening in my relationships and someone angers me or hurts me, instead of being in tune to what God might want, instead I take things into my own hand and I act reactively. Or I want to cut things off with that person. Or I, I want to do anything to hurt that person back. Now, one of the hardest things to do when we talk about faith is to do the right thing even when it's hard. Uh, when I was in seminary and graduate school, I remember... Um, the way that we used to uh, turn in exams, there was a due time, and then we would have to go and turn in our papers. This is before we could turn things in electronically. We had to turn our papers in, like a physical, like stapled paper, in front of the office of our professor. And so I remember in seminary one day, my paper was due, I think it was like at 1 p.m. on like a Thursday or something. And uh, I didn't get it done in time. Um, it was a paper on theology and God. And anyhow, I didn't get it done. And so I was feeling really anxious about it. And it was very clear that if you didn't finish the paper in time, you get marked down a grade. So basically, I, I remember I'm, I'm working fiercely to finish it that day. Couldn't even get it done that day. The next morning, um, was about, it was about 10 a.m. And I remember I finished it. And I remember getting the paper, stapling it, running out of my dorm and running to my professor's office, you know. So when I got to the office, I noticed, um, I got to the office, and there was the tray of where you're supposed to leave your paper, your final paper. And so I noticed, though, that the paper, the, the stack of papers, it was actually pretty full. So being the brilliant person that I am, I was like, oh, my goodness, like, the professor hasn't picked these up yet. So I remember I, I kind of looked at the stack. I looked around me. I was like, I was like, you know what? He won't even know if I, I just, so I, I picked up, I, like I went halfway in, put my, uh, put my paper in there, and I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> just, you know, then I just walked away. <laughs> and I, was, I was so grateful, you know. But of course, I didn't want to tell anyone what happened. I was just like, oh, my goodness, God, you're really looking out for me. <laughs> and, and then I, I just, I, like, I, I felt this, like, guilty, this conscience thing, like, Drew, you, you have to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth. Then I would, I would talk my way out of it. I'm like, well, if the professor really wanted the due date at 1 p.m. on Thursday, he would have picked it up. <laughs> it's his fault. You know, like there's all these things. And like, well, God, so, like somehow weaved this way so that I could actually put my paper right there in the middle. But this conscience thing. So then finally I was, just, I was like, you know what, I just need to email him. So I sent him an email. I just sent him an email. I'm just like, hey, Professor Lintz, I just want you to know, like, um, I know that the due date was at 1 p.m., but I noticed that outside your door, there was a stack of papers there already. And so um, I don't know what I was thinking, but I put my, my paper in the middle. I just want you to know, I, I turned it in on Friday, though, at 10 a.m. And I remember just thinking, oh, finally, my conscience was finally eased. And I, I just, I, this is what I expected. I expected my professor basically to be like, Drew, 
I've never met such an honorable student before. <laughs> you are the most, this is like such, you're a man of valor and honor. This is, there's going to be no penalty to your paper. But instead, he actually, he, he wrote me back like almost immediately. Like I felt this conscious burden lift. Then I got a reply almost re immediately. He goes, Drew, thank you for that honest feedback. I just want you to know because it was a day late, you'll be marked down one grade. Thank you. Happy holidays. God, why do you hate me, God? <laughs> now, it's funny, looking back at that instance, right? Like, I, I just realized, like, it's, it's so hard to do the right thing. But looking back at that instance, like, I could blame God about it, but I realized what I learned from that was, first, it was a great sermon illustration, wasn't it? I mean, no, I'm just kidding. But, I mean, it was, it was also a lesson in, of just responsibility, of trying to be timely, of honesty, of the fact that I thought, oh my goodness, if I get a bad grade, my life will be over. All these things, like all these different messages. I realize that when I do the right, it's okay to do the right thing, even when the right thing is hard. You know what's so amazing is that Simeon, who, doesn't, who maybe doesn't even live to see the promise fulfilled, doesn't even know how the life of Jesus is going to turn out, somehow is able, like the text tells us, is someone who walks with righteousness and is devout. Is someone that is choosing to do the right thing thing even when it's hard now here's what i realized like some of you are like well why should i even choose to do the right thing no one else in new york wants to do the right thing they all want to do the thing that'll make them the most money or they all want to do the thing that lets them get over me in the company or to advance against me because it's a dog eat dog kind of city i mean isn't that what we often tell ourselves why should i do the right thing when no one else cares about doing the right thing well see what it means to follow jesus and to follow god is to say that my life is not about me. I actually don't surrender my life to myself and what I want. I surrender to a God of the universe. Now, here's the revelation of Christmas, though. The revelation of Christmas is that God reveals himself not only to be a great God, but to be a good God. The scripture tells us, for God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world. It's because God loves the world that Jesus comes into the world. Here's what we believe about God, that God is not some God that is out to make sure you better, you better do all these things right before I smite you. That God is not a vindictive God who's trying to nitpick at what you've done wrong. Instead, when Jesus comes into the world, we find the revelation that God is a God of infinite love. And it's because God loves us that he would come into the world, live the life that we should live, and die the death that we should die. But resurrect so that we can find hope and a life in him. I love this quote in this exchange in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, there's this interchange between Lucy and Mr. Beaver. And when Aslan, the character in Chronicles of Narnia, when they're talking about Aslan, here's what it says. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he, this is Aslan, isn't safe. But he's good. Aslan is good. He's the king, I tell you. In this interchange, Lucy is wondering, like, well, what do you mean? If he's a lion, is he safe? How could I approach him? And Mr. Beaver's like, no, 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 you don't understand. 
following Jesus isn't always safe. In fact, sometimes it can be terrifying. Sometimes it can lead us to do things that we don't want to do. But here's what we can trust. We can trust that Jesus is good. That's why Jesus has come into the world, because of his love for us. He would come into the world so that he might die for us and resurrect so that we might find hope in Jesus. Not hope in our careers, not hope in our families, not hope in all these other things that might be good things, but ultimately leave us wanting more. Instead, we can actually trust in Jesus who is good.